Well, we're past the stand with me part. Okay, in reverence for the reading of the Holy Scriptures um, from the Gospel of Mark 12, 35 to 37. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said, my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. That's the word of God, please be seated. All right, well, I, uh, I'm wearing my Western Seminary swag today I, because it's a really cozy sweater, A, sweatshirt, but also I just, I don't talk about this much, but I just found out finally after four years in this program called the THM uh, that I'm all set pretty much to graduate this April, which is like big, <laughs> big news for me. Uh, so yeah, it was, it was a program I started back when I was on staff at Door of Hope Southeast and thought, oh, it'll be really easy to write an academic thesis over the time I, we plant a church. Turns out not so much. It's drug on for years and years now, feels like. And, uh, but yeah, home stretch. I'm, I'm getting close to defending my thesis and all that. Is that a question back there? Yeah. THM, it's a Master of Theology. Master of Theology degree. So, master, yeah, yeah. So, anyway, yeah, that's probably, honestly, the last you'll ever hear me mention that, but, um, but I've mentioned it now, and uh, I'm really stoked. I'm really stoked. We're, we're, we're home stretch here. Um, I'm now realizing, you know, it's so cold. I ride my bike here in the mornings, usually it's so cold outside. And then it's cold in this building, and I crank the AC up. And then once all these bodies are in here, now I'm like really hot in this thing. So, and I don't have another layer. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm stuck. But that's okay. Enough about that. Let's talk about the Bible. <laughs> Deborah read the passage for us. It's a short passage. You've probably noticed. Just a couple of verses here. Um, I'm hopeful. I'm really hopeful. It's going to be a short sermon as well in the spirit of this passage um, and that we're going to have some time to kind of prayerfully reflect on this a little bit more than we usually do. Um, but this passage, I, I think the heart of this, you read this and you're kind of like, oh, well, this is kind of like weird. What, what is this? What is, what is Jesus getting at here? Why? Why this? And the heart of this thing, I'm convinced as I've read it, is, is about settling. It's about settling. Have you ever settled for anything? I think we often think about that in terms of like romantic relationships, you know. I, I was thinking about this recently, actually, how frustrating it is. I had this one relationship in college that in many ways I felt like I was settling with. And all my friends, it turns out, after we broke up, had felt the same way. And not one of them ever had the guts to tell me, like, hey, we don't really like her. We don't, we don't think that this is a good relationship. And I would have been ticked off if they had told me in the moment, of course. But after I came to that conclusion, I was like, come on, you gotta let me know, you gotta tell me. Have you ever settled for anything? Settled for a job? Settled, settled in a relationship? Settled in your view of the Messiah, the coming deliverer of God? 
we'll come back to that idea here in a second. Let's pray one more time and invite the Spirit's influence. God, it is easy. It is easy to settle. It is easy to settle in our minds, uh, in our hearts, for a version of you, a version of Jesus, a version of our Messiah that, that, that is far less than the glorious one that you actually are. It's tempting for a whole number of reasons, Lord, but, it, but it's always settling because you, the real you, is always better than these fabrications and these knockoffs that we concoct, Lord. We pray, Father, this morning that you would, you would convict us about where we're doing this. I assume we all are in some ways. Um, Lord, and return us to the real you, the genuine you. We could give you the praise and the worship and, and the honor that you deserve, Father. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're continuing through the Gospel of Mark, and if you've been with us the last few weeks, you've seen Jesus has been kind of undergoing this barrage of questions from different religious leaders, all trying to challenge him from different angles. And finally, the tables have started to turn. At the end of, of the, last, uh, the last passage we looked at last week, Jesus, you know, he, he answered a question, but then he kind of resumes the seat that's rightfully his, the seat of judge. He says, I'm actually going to pronounce judgment on you about how, where you are in relationship to the kingdom of God. And for these next few passages, Jesus is going to step back into that. He's, not, he's no longer passively answering questions. He's got some things he needs to say. He's got some more things he needs to declare. And this is the first of those. He's going to talk about the fate of the temple and the world here in a couple weeks. Next week, he's going to talk about the nature of genuine spirituality in his view. Today, he's talking about his own identity as the Messiah. He's got something he wants to raise. He's not just reacting anymore. So listen to this passage again. As Jesus taught in the temple, as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes, again, those are those experts, those teachers of the law, say that the Christ, that's the Messiah, interchangeable words, Christ and Messiah, is the son of David. David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And then Jesus comments on this. He says, David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng, the great crowd heard him gladly. So Jesus wants to raise an issue from a psalm, from one of the psalms, that prayer and song book, that worship book of the Old Testament that's been foundational for Israel and for the Christian church throughout its whole life. He quotes Psalm 110, which if you didn't know this, I didn't know this until this week. It is the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament, 33 times. No other Old Testament passage gets quoted as much. So this was incredibly important for the early Christians. Maybe we'll learn a little bit why here. So to make whatever point Jesus is going to make, he quotes the authoritative scriptures that would have been certainly authoritative to all these people who have been challenging him. He says, I'm going to quote David, the greatest of Israel's kings, who wrote in the Holy Spirit, so inspired by the Holy Spirit of God to write what he wrote, and this was, this was uh, canonized as the very scriptures, the very words of God. So, so I'm going I'm to let David and the Holy Spirit and the scriptures speak here. So he's, gonna, he's, going, he's making a, a power move here to, to, to bring up something none of these people would have challenged. And what he's challenging... What he's challenging is a popular belief that had begun to solidify around the Messiah. We talk about this all, we've talked about this so much through Mark, but Israel was awaiting this figure known as the Messiah, known as the Christ. 
this person who was going to be this deliverer who was going to save Israel. And we could put it this way, you, you could go way deeper than this, but, but the, the central belief that, they, that was building because of these promises throughout the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, that was growing and growing and growing was this. A Messiah, an anointed king, was coming who would be a descendant of and a ruler like David, and he was going to put everything right. That was the belief. So what is Jesus challenging? What, 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 this is kind of cryptic, isn't it? What is Jesus looking to challenge in that belief? Well, first, is he challenging the idea that the Messiah was coming at all? No. No, clearly not. He was not challenging the idea that the spirit-anointed king would come and rule on God's behalf in power and wisdom, defeating Israel's enemies, ushering in new glories days. Jesus had no issue with this. Okay. Was he challenging the idea that, that the Messiah would be a descendant of David? So this, this was a belief that the Messiah would come from the line, from the family of King David, Israel's most celebrated and greatest king, the one that was the, the, kind of the prototype for any good king to follow. Is Jesus challenging that idea? No. No, that, that idea is promised all over the Hebrew Bible. Jesus was not challenging it. In fact, in both Matthew and Luke's Gospels, they go to painstaking detail to start their Gospels with genealogies of Jesus that establish him as someone in the line of David. That, look, this is the Messiah, how do we know? Well, one of the reasons we know is because he actually is from the line of David. In Mark's gospel, Jesus has just received the praises of people associating with David from the blind man Bartimaeus and from the crowds when he rode in at the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday. Jesus is more than ready to accept declaration as a son of David. So that's not what Jesus is challenging either. But what about this one? that he would be a ruler like David. And this is where it gets interesting. Is Jesus challenging that idea? Yes and no. No in the sense that, look, the hope of a ruler like David, here's what that boils down to. A ruler who would rule with a heart after God's own heart from a place of love for God, from a place of intimacy with God, from a place of wisdom with God. And God knows David was not perfect. Just read the stories about him. The man was deeply flawed, made some egregious, horrific, like nightmarish mistakes. But nonetheless, the reason he's the prototype is because his heart, though he faltered, was after God's own. That was what they were hoping for. And that if someone could actually just rule that way, peace and blessing and victory and prosperity would follow. So in one sense, Jesus would say, yeah, that, that's, that's, that's who I am. That's what I'm coming to do. But on, here's the sense that Jesus is getting at here. Here's why he's bringing up this kind of strange phrase. He's not merely a ruler like David. He's not merely a ruler like David. Here, here, take it one step further. Any human king, any mere human king's accomplishments were far too small of a model for the kind of things that Jesus was going to bring. That's his point. And he, he, he makes it by this kind of theological puzzle here. You see this? According to commentator James Edwards, Psalm 110 was a coronation hymn that would have been sung, chanted, or recited at the inauguration of the kings of Judah and Israel. But even beyond that, it came to be understood as a messianic psalm, something that was, that was hinting at what the, what the Messiah was going to be like. And Jesus is fixated on this phrase, 
the Lord said to my Lord and its implications. What is that? That's what this all hinges on. The Lord said to my Lord. In Hebrew, we, we miss this in English, we would even miss it in Greek if we were reading it in Greek, but in Hebrew, there are two words for Lord there. The first is the name of God, the covenant name of God, Yahweh. So Yahweh, the Lord, Yahweh, the one true God of Israel. He said something to someone. Who did he say it to? David's Lord. Okay. Second word Lord is the Hebrew Adonai, which is a more generic like Lord or ruler, sometimes even king. So the Lord, Yahweh, the God, the one true God of Israel is speaking to this other Lord who, who David says is my Lord. Okay, so we've, we've got two Lords here, and this is interesting. David wrote of two lords. The Lord, his creator God, spoke to my Lord, which was widely beginning to be recognized as the Messiah. The Messiah. The Lord speaks to the Messiah Lord. Sit at my right hand. Assume the, position, the, the greatest seat of influence and power. Become my executive, the one through whom I'm going to work. That's what it means to sit at the king's right hand. Until I put your enemies under your feet. Till I give you complete victory. So the Lord, the Lord, said to my Lord. Jesus is really interested in this phrase. And here's why it's so interesting. We, we kind of miss this. We kind of miss this. What, what's so wild about this is that no one in this ancient culture would ever speak of their son or their grandson or their great-great-grandson or their great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson, as the case may be. You would never speak of your descendant as your Lord. It, it, it's as offensive as like looking at your three-year-old and going like, my Lord, <laughs> like there's just something like, no, you don't do that, especially in a culture like this. It would be nonsensical, no matter how great the Messiah is, if he's just a human grandson of David, why would David call him Lord? That's what Jesus is putting his thumb on. So people would read this and they would kind of gloss over, like, oh, that's strange, that's interesting. But Jesus wants to just put the magnifying glass over this and say, no, 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 listen to what the, the Spirit-inspired words of David say here. There are two lords, one who came before David, one who comes after David, but they are both Lord to him. The implication here is that the Messiah is not just a son of David, though he is. He's the son of God. This is a subtle way. It doesn't come out and spell that for you, but we're meant to see this now, certainly at this point in Mark. He is not merely a son of David. He is the son of God. Jesus himself, then, is not just a son of David, though he is a son of David. He is the son of God as well. That's the issue. Jesus puts, puts the magnifying glass to it. David calls him Lord. So how could he be his son? And Jesus doesn't give an answer. Mark doesn't give us an answer. They just leave us here with this puzzle. Like, that's weird. That is weird, Jesus. That is weird. So we've got to connect the dots for ourselves. What's the point here? In thinking of the Messiah as merely the son of David, they have settled. Like, everyone basically in Israel has, has assumed this narrow view of the Messiah, this, this very like low stakes view, relatively, that he's gonna be a human king, he's gonna rule with a lot of wisdom, he's maybe gonna amass an army, he's gonna be a great military strategist, he's gonna be really powerful, whatever. But it's all just on this human plane, it's just purely human terms. 
another great king from the line of David. They have a stunted imagination. We keep seeing people in Mark's gospel running up to this problem whenever they think about the things of God that they just can't get outside. They can't get a big enough, a broad enough, a, a, a glorious enough view of things. Their imagination is stunted. They can only think in terms of what a human king can do, of a socio-political ruler. At this point in history, they were consumed with a nationalistic vision of a military victory over Rome. And fair enough, the Roman Empire, the most powerful empire the world had ever known, had its foot on Israel's neck. And it was, we've already read about this, it was making a mockery of the temple by these taxes, it was doing all these weird things. I mean, they were responsible for a lot of that themselves, but Rome was doing all, all it could to humiliate this little nation of Israel. And so fair enough, we need Messiah to come and kill all these Romans so we can return to the glory days. That's the hope of the Messiah that most of them had. Now, all of us, I, I, I think most of us, I should, I should say, maybe not all of us, most of us, I think, would rightfully cringe at the idea of this sort of religious kind of warfare language. Go get your gun, go get your AK-47, you know, whatever. We're gonna, we're gonna overthrow the bad guys. Jesus would say, you're right to cringe at that. You're right to be fearful of that. You're right to look across history and say, is it good news or bad news when religious fanatics take up their guns and go try to put things right in the here and now? Is it good news or bad news? It's always bad news. It's always bad news. And yet this is what, this is all that they can imagine. This is all that they can imagine. Jesus, maybe some of them think it's Jesus. The guys that are challenging him, they do not think it's Jesus. They say, whoever Messiah is going to be, what we need him to do, what he's going to do is to kill our enemies and return us to glory. Okay. That's the way in which they are settling. And that, that's the highest thing they can imagine. What, what greater thing could there be than returning Israel to its sort of national and religious glory? They're settling in that view. But let's cut them some slack before we, before we turn our noses up at them too much because we do the same things, I am convinced. You know, in his incredible essay, The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis, he wrote about human desire, but I, I think what he says about desire very much, very much applies to what we're talking about here and even our desire for what the Messiah must or should or could be like. Lewis writes this, he says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. I think if we're honest, all of us have this impulse to take the fully glorious, complicated picture of Jesus, our Messiah, and to reduce him to something that meets our immediate needs. We want to reduce or change Jesus to meet the primary felt need in front of us. And I can't tell you, I cannot tell you, maybe some of you, maybe a couple of you that we've had intimate conversation or whatever, but most of you, I could not tell you how you are tempted to settle for an inferior, lesser Jesus but my hunch is that you are, because I know I am. I believe all of us are. 
at the end of the sermon, we're going to actually just set some time aside to ask God to search our hearts and reveal that to us in, a, in, in an intentional way, but we'll get there in a minute. I know for me, I'm most tempted to settle for a Jesus that is all about my personal happiness. And you know how that gets personal? And it's not so crass as just like, I want to feel happy emotions all the time. For me, I think, as I've been reflecting on this this week, I think it's my personal happiness expressed largely as middle-class stability. I think if you really put me under the microscope, you could see some kind of x-ray of my heart and my mind and my spirit, you would see that's what's in there. A Jesus who's going to give me safety, stability, financial security. I'm not going to have to stress too much. You know, the house is going to be hovering on the edge of sort of like Instagram-able or whatever. Um, yeah, raising kids is hard, but the kids will be, you know, comfortable and whatever. I think that's what's in here. I think that's what's in here. A Jesus that exists to baptize my plans and my fortunes. Even if it's not visions of having a private jet or whatever, whatever. That, that's not it. It's something far more uh, acceptable for me, I think. Jesus that exists to baptize my plans, my fortune. A Jesus that always gives me what I want, enables my plans, makes my outcomes happen when conflict arises. Whenever you and I maybe have conflict in this room at some point, my Jesus will always side with me over you. A Jesus that makes sure I am comfortable. But you know what? Right now, right now, I have the clarity of mind to say two things about that. One is, that's not who he is. That's just not who he is. Doesn't matter how much I think of him that way, pray to him as though he is that way, it doesn't matter. I know in my clear moments, that's not, that's not our Messiah. Second, I can actually thank God that that's not who he is. It's not only the case that he's not that way, but it's good news that he's not that way. Because if Jesus were that way, it would be hell for you. If Jesus were primarily interested in just making sure that Cameron's agendas come through, it would actually be hell for you guys. And vice versa. He's so much better than working the universe in every situation so that Cameron gets the thing that is most immediately his desire. I promise you that. And vice versa. So Jesus is raising the issue of a short-sighted, settling view of what the Messiah is going to be like. They wanted swords to go lop off the heads of the Romans and bring about glory. What do you want? I suspect it's something. I suspect it's something. But although Jesus and Mark, the gospel writer here, leave us hanging here like, okay, David calls him Lord, so how is he his son? So he must be somehow greater than just a son of David, just someone who rules like David, just a human king. He doesn't get us there. Fortunately, we've got a big Bible. Got a big Bible. We are left to chew on this question, but I, I don't want to just leave us there fully here. I want to I highlight two things about Jesus that make him so confounding to our categories because they're the two things that rarely go together in this life. One is that he is the Lord of glory. Jesus is more glorious than we could even imagine. This goes back to what we read in the middle point of the Gospel of Mark when Jesus was transfigured before his closest disciples. Remember, he went up on a mountain and his appearance changed. 
His skin shined forth. It was like the glory of God beaming from the skin of Jesus. His clothes said were whiter than any human could bleach them. It was a supernatural picture. For this instant, it wasn't just the humble Jesus walking around who was the son of a carpenter, who was this kind of meandering teacher who went around, even miracle worker, but whatever, just a a man. It was, oh man, oh man, this is God in the flesh, visible. The booming voice of heaven, booming voice of God from heaven speaks out, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. He's the Lord of glory. He's the Lord of glory. I think of John. Mark doesn't do this in his gospel, but John does in his. He he has these I am statements where Jesus gives these teachings and Jesus declares himself to be, I am the bread of life. If you want life, Jesus says you have to eat of me. He says, I am the light of the world. Do you want clarity? Do you want vision? Do you want the truth? You have to come to me. Jesus says, I am the door of the sheep, and relatedly, I am the good shepherd. I am the one who will actually, the only one who's fit to actually keep my people safe. He goes on, he says, I am the resurrection and the life in chapter 11. You kill me, I will come back to life, because I am the source of all life. I am the resurrection and the life. He goes further than that. I am the way, the truth, and the life, chapter 14. He says, no one comes to the Father but through me. Chapter 15, I am the true vine. You must be connected to me to have any sort of spiritual vitality. You're the branches, but I'm the vine. Abide in me. And then the one that was just the most earth-shattering that all of these other ones are kind of hinting at, but listen to this one, John 8. Jesus said, before Abraham was... You know what? I am. I am. The name of God. Yahweh. Before this, this first century Jewish carpenter, he's claiming, he's claiming, before Abraham, the father of Israel, before he existed, I am. That's what Jesus is claiming. Or we think about the words of Paul. We're going to move on after this. In Colossians chapter 1, listen to this. This is one of my favorite passages in the Bible. Paul writes about Jesus. He says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things. In him all things hold together. He's the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The Bible claims something absolutely wild because Jesus himself claimed it. That he is not merely an interesting religious teacher. He is Yahweh. I am the God of all creation incarnated in human flesh. The image of the invisible God. He's the Lord of glory. 
He's not just a human king ruling with human ideas, from human limited understanding, with human agendas, so easily corruptible. But he's this. That's what he claims. That's what he claims. But he's not just the Lord of glory either. What makes this so, so fascinating and complex is that he's not just what we think of in, in terms of human greatness. He's also the Lord of humility. Though he is more glorious than we can imagine, he's more humble and relatable than often we want to even be able to accept. Read the words of Paul in another book, Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 4. He says, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself. Like Paul's saying, so it's not just that the eternal God takes on human flesh, that's enough. But he then goes, keep reading, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Just to remind you, the, uh, the, the cross was a, was a torture device meant for maximal humiliation, devised by, by the Roman Empire. Verse 9, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess Jesus Christ as Lord to the glory of God the Father. So somehow in this Jesus, who is the Messiah. He is both the Lord of glory and he's the king of humility and somehow these two things do not stand in contradiction to one another. Somehow they are not at odds. They, they both mutually reinforce one another. He is more glorious than we can imagine and he has humbled himself to wed his body eternally to humanity. He, Jesus will always be a man. He will always be a human. He will always be your brother. And not just that, but he went to the cross in your place and in mine. So I'm not going to belabor it. We say these are the claims that the New Testament makes. These are the claims that Jesus makes in various places. The Messiah is not merely the son of David. Because David himself calls him Lord. He's not merely his son. Jesus is not only the son of David, he's the son of God. And this is good news. This is better news than any little Jesus we could invent, any way we want to conform Jesus to our agendas and our ideas, because at the end of the day, those are all going to be, those are going to result in, they're going to result in horror. But if he really is the perfect Lord of glory and the perfect Lord of humility, we can trust him. We can trust him to rule. We can trust him to reign. We can trust that his plans are good, that he lacks nothing in wisdom or justice or righteousness or peacefulness. It's the only king we can trust. He's the only king we can trust. I think human history bears that out. So this is good news, friends. It's good news. So instead of going further, explaining more, we're going to do something that we should create more time for week to week, which is we're just going to, we're going to give him the invitation to reveal to us. I want, I want you to do this. We're going to just, where you're sitting, 
Honestly, if you want to get up and move around and go find a corner, that's fine too. But you can stay where you're sitting, that's fine as well. But wherever you want to be, I want you to ask. I want you to ask him. Lord, where have I settled for a pale imitation of you? Where have I desired an idol instead of the genuine king? And where have I left the real you for someone else? Like the psalmist declares, search me, O God. See if there is any offensive way in me. That's what we're doing right now. So we're going to take five minutes or so. I just want you, again, if you, if you want to go move, that's totally fine. But wherever you end up, ask him to search you and to reveal. And if you get something, if you, if, if, if you feel like in, in your spirit, in your heart, something's been revealed to you, then you just confess that right back to him. He's so gracious, friends. You confess it back to him. Lord, I, I, think, I think this is what I've settled for. I think this is what I've settled for over against the real you. Forgive me. Give me a vision of the real you today. And then we're going to come back together. Um, oh, what I would say is once, once you've kind of taken a few minutes, um, grab a communion cup if you haven't already and go back to your seat. Then I'm going to come back and we're going to take communion together. Uh, all of us who are, who are believers in Jesus, we're going to take communion together um, and celebrate from there. Sound good? All right. Time is yours.